0: Mark chapter 10, we find ourselves in a verse-by-verse study of the book of Mark. We've been here at this church now for a year and one month and two weeks or so. Amen. And uh, we've covered 10, almost not quite, not even 10 chapters in the book of Mark in that year and a month. We find ourselves in verse 17 of Mark 10. It says, and Jesus was setting out on a journey. And a man ran up to him and knelt before him and began asking him, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud and honor your father and your mother. And the man said to Jesus, Teacher, I have kept all these from my youth up. And Jesus looked at him and loved him and said to him, one thing you lack, go and sell all you possess and give to the poor and you shall have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. But at these words, his face fell and he went away grieved for he is one who owned much property. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus answered again and said to them, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And they were even more astonished and said to Jesus, Then who can be saved? Looking upon them, Jesus said, With men it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Lord, this morning as we've opened up your word... We ask that you would do a work in our hearts. Lord, I know this morning in our midst are those that don't know you in a personal way. They haven't received you as their Lord and Savior. They haven't been forgiven of every sin. And there's something in their life that, though they're looking for you, they want you in a way. There's something that is stopping them from surrendering. And Lord, I just ask this morning that you would draw them with your loving kindness that you would reveal your goodness and your wonder and your kindness and your promises to them. The men and women in here would be prompted to lay everything down and follow the king that created them. So speak to us through your word. We're here to know you more. We're here to find you. Speak to us, God. In Jesus' name, amen. Verse 17 tells us of a man who ran up to Jesus And he's kneeling before him. And we discern very clearly from the text here that he was a rich man. But Matthew gives us some details that Mark omits. And that's that he was a young man. And Luke clarifies the situation even further and tells us that he was a ruler. And so from the Gospels together, we find out that this was a young, rich ruler. And this young, rich ruler is a person who on the outside seemed to have everything going for him. He was young. It was wonderful. He was rich. To be young and rich, oh joy. Not only that, but he was a man of prestige, a man of position. He was a ruler. He had people underneath him. Beyond that, he was extremely religious, and he was very good at his religion. We saw that in our text. If this guy were in high school, he would have been voted most popular without a doubt. He would have been voted most likely to succeed. No doubt he would have been class president. I am sure that for this rich young ruler, praise was something that was common to his ears. That is the praise of him. I'm sure that men and women adored him. I'm sure that he received much adulation. That they looked and said, what a wonderful young man. He's got it all together. He's rich, and he's young, and he's powerful, and religious, and what a guy. And I'm sure that when he compared himself to others, he found reason to praise himself. He was doing all right by the world's standards. And yet we know from the text that the man was absolutely empty on the inside. We know from the text that he had no hope. All that he had had given him no joy. We know that he realized that he was lacking, but he couldn't put his finger on it. Seemed to have it all together, but something was missing. He was, even though he was very religious, unsure of his eternal destiny. You see, his position in life never brought him peace in life. His power over people never afforded him any amount of satisfaction. And his possessions were never able to buy him security or in this life or the next. In the eyes of men, he was a tremendous success. In reality, he was an empty shell of a man. Nevertheless, verse 21 is profound. Verse 21 says, Jesus looked at him and he loved him. Let it sink in for a minute. Think about it. Listen to me. Jesus looked at him and he loved him. The Lord knew exactly who the man was. He knew the ins and the outs. The psalmist declares, Oh Lord, you formed me. You knew my unformed substance. You fearfully and wonderfully made me in my mother's womb. Before a single breath was taken, before a day was lived, you knew my name. God, you look upon the heart. You know my fears and my joys and my concerns and my worries. You know my arrogance. You know my humility. You know it all, Lord. You know my comings and my goings. You know when I get up and when I lie down. I can't escape from your presence, God. God knew this man on the inside out and it declares here that he loved him. Jesus looked at him and he loved him. And the word there is agape. That is, God loved him with a perfect love, with an unending love, with a love that in the human realm is indescribable. We can't even put words on it. God had to give us a book that was this big to begin to describe just the acts of this agape love. The character of which we can't ascertain, we can't hold on to. It's beyond us. It is the love of God for you and I. And so God's love is for you. You understand that God is absolutely, overwhelmingly, unmistakably in love with you. He knit you together in your mother's womb. He is your heavenly father. When you were conceived, it is God that allowed for that. The Bible teaches that He is sovereign over the womb. God chose the color of your eyes. God shaped your nose Himself. Your chin, your ears, your elbow, your fingerprint. God put it all together. You are fearfully and wonderfully made and formed by the God of the universe. The Bible teaches us that Jesus Christ is the God of the universe. Colossians says that all things were created by him and for him. And apart from him, there is nothing that exists and that all things are held together by him. And the God of the universe, though he saw this man's heart and all that he really was, was absolutely in love with him and he's in love with you today. And if you go away with nothing else today, you need to know that God will pursue you to the end of your life. He's left the decision of you responding to His love up to you. He will seek to woo you by His Holy Spirit. The Bible declares that He draws you by His loving kindness. But you have got to make a decision to walk in that love, to receive it in its fullness, and to respond to it. This man was longing for the love of God. Notice that he ran to Jesus. He fell on his knees before him. And he says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? I want to live with God forever in heaven. What is it going to take? And Jesus responds. But prior to responding, Jesus gives him a brief theological lesson. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus responds, interestingly enough, in verse 18... And says, why do you call me good? No one is good except for God alone. Now upon first glance, it seems as though Jesus here is denying his deity. Upon first glance, it seems as though the Lord is saying, don't call me good, only God is good and I'm not God. But there is a rule of Bible interpretation. And it says basically this. Anytime you come across a verse or a passage that the meaning of which is unclear to you, then what you are to do is allow clearer verses to shed light on that passage. Let the Bible interpret the Bible. If you don't understand something, interpret it in context of the rest of the Bible. Let very clear statements lead you in the interpretation of that one. So what is the Lord saying here? Can he possibly be denying his deity? No, if we think that, we have a misunderstanding because the Bible teaches emphatically from cover to cover that Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. Just one sampling from the Old Testament. Isaiah nine six, For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest upon his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, and Prince of Peace. A clear prophecy of the birth of Jesus Christ and that he is the Mighty God. He is the Eternal Father. He is the Son of God, and yet he is fully God. It is this thing that we call the eternal. Trinity. The New Testament speaks of, I'll just give you a couple passages. John chapter 10, verse 30, Jesus said, I and the Father are one. We're told in John 10, verse 31, that then the Jews, the religious leaders who heard him, picked up stones to kill him. And he said to them, for which of my good deeds do you stone me? And they said, we're not stoning you for any good deeds, we are stoning you because you make yourself out to be God, though you are a man. You see, they understood when Jesus said, the Father and I are one, that he was claiming to be God in the flesh. The Jews are very acquainted with Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And so they knew when Jesus said, I and the Father are one, that he was clearly claiming to be God, so much so that they sought to kill him for blasphemy. John chapter 9, verse 38, Jesus deals with the man and then the man begins to worship him. Anytime in the Bible somebody other than the eternal God is worshiped, they are thoroughly and fully rebuked. Don't do that, the person will say. And yet when Jesus was receiving worship, he did just that and received worship as God. John chapter 14, verse 9, Jesus said to the disciples, If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. It was in response to what one of them, Philip, had said. Said, Oh, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. And he said, haven't I been with you long enough? Listen, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. The Father and I are one. John chapter 20, verse 28. He makes the appearance in the upper room and there is doubting Thomas. Thomas puts his hands in the wound. And the response of Thomas is, my Lord and my God. And Jesus, being a teacher, had a great opportunity to say, "Wait a minute, hold on, Thomas, you're getting a little carried away here. I am merely the Messiah, not God in the flesh." He never says that. He says, "Now you finally believe, Thomas. Now you get it. I am the Lord. I am God." In John chapter one, verse one, we know, "In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God." And in verse fourteen, "And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us." You see, Jesus is God in the flesh. Titus chapter 2 verse 13 calls Jesus Christ our great God and Savior. Romans chapter 9 verse 5 says clearly the Messiah that He is God. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 8 is tremendously interesting. There God the Father says to Jesus Christ, Thy throne, O God, is forever. God declares that Jesus is God. And in 1 John chapter 5, verse 20, Jesus is called the true God and the eternal life. So now, with those things in mind, we interpret John chapter or Mark chapter 10, verse 18. Jesus is by no means denying his deity, he's challenging the man's conception of good or perception or idea. He says to them, You call me good? You understand that only God is good. Do you understand who I am? It was an explicit claim to deity. In that day, Jews didn't call anybody good. It was thought to be blasphemy. The Pharisees and the religious leaders, they loved a good title. Oh, call me something that makes me feel important. But they would say, don't call me good because that is reserved for God alone. Verse 19, after claiming deity, Jesus finally begins to answer his question. He says, you know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud. Honor your father and your mother. Jesus here mentions the last half of the Ten Commandments found in Exodus chapter 20. He gives us the last half, but he omits, interestingly enough, the last one, the Tenth Commandment, Thou shalt not covet. Talk about why that is in a few minutes. But he gives them these commandments and he adds one, do not defraud, which means cheat. Do not cheat. These commandments he gives to the man because these are easily measured with external conduct. The first one, thou shalt love the Lord thy God, and him only, that one's harder to measure on the outside. But these are easily measured on the outside. And so Jesus gives these to him, but realize that Jesus taught us in the Sermon on the Mount that the commandments of God don't have to do with external obedience. Obedience but with our internal condition, you understand. Jesus explained the law in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, you've heard it said, thou shalt not murder. But I tell you, if you hate your brother in your heart, you've already murdered him. Jesus said, you've heard it said, thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you, if you look at a woman with lust in your heart, you have already committed adultery. You see, Jesus clarified for us as a teacher That the law has to do with our heart, not with the things which are external. Why? Because the whole Bible is very clear that God looks upon the heart. We just see the outside. We look at each other and we can fool each other pretty easily. But you can't fool God. The Bible declares that all things are laid bare before the eyes of Him with whom we have to do. He looks upon the heart and He's concerned with the heart, not merely external things. But look what the man says. Verse 20. And the man said to Jesus, Teacher, I have kept all these things from my youth up. Now, our immediate response is what? No, you haven't. Come on, man, you're pulling our leg. You have not. But notice that the Lord doesn't challenge him. The Lord doesn't contradict that. We have no reason from the text to think that this man was lying. That according to external observance of the rules, he had pulled it off since his bar mitzvah, since he became a son of the law. He had pulled it off. He hadn't murdered anyone. He hadn't committed adultery. He hadn't stolen. He hadn't lied. He hadn't cheated. He had honored his mother and his father. Lord, I've done all these things. Paul said the same thing in Philippians chapter 3, verse 6. Paul there is giving his testimony. And he says, concerning righteousness as to the law, I'm without a flaw. In other words, as far as just observing the commandments in an external way, Paul says, I've pulled it off just as this young man says, I've pulled it off. I've been able to have external obedience. I've been outwardly following the rules. And the rabbis during that day taught that it was actually possible to obey the law of God from beginning to end. all 613 commandments given to us in the Old Testament, they taught that it was possible. But having now before us the New Covenant, the New Testament, we know that that's not true. We know from Galatians chapter 5 that the law is a schoolmaster moving us toward Christ Jesus. We know from Romans chapter 3 that all have sinned because God doesn't look at external things. He looks upon the heart. Turn to Romans chapter 3 for a moment. Romans chapter 3. In Romans chapter 3, the first several verses, Paul has been talking about the Jews and the benefit that they've derived as being the people of the covenant. And then he says in verse 9, what then? Are we better than they? Talking about the Gentiles or the Greeks, non-Jews. He's saying, are the Jews better than non-Jews? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. And then verse 10. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There's no fear of God before their eyes. Verse 9. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under law, that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. What was just said here in the book of Romans very clearly, that everybody is a sinner before God. It says in verse 23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The Bible declares without apology, without exception, that every one of us is guilty before a holy God. You see, God's standard is not our standard. If we're going by our standard, many of us are doing okay, you know. You can always find somebody worse than you. It's not hard. You don't have to look far. You can always find somebody that's blowing it more than you are. According to man's standard, hey, we're pretty good. But at the judgment after death, the Bible says... It is appointed for man to die once and then the judgment comes. At the judgment, we will be judged, but not according to the standard of men. God won't say, okay, uh, Glenn, you did better than Britt. And Terry, you did better than Glenn. And Mark, you did better than all of them. Okay, so um, you guys are in and you guys are out. We're not graded on a curve before God, you understand? It doesn't work that way we are graded according to 100%, according to God's 100%, God's standard. And the Bible declares in the book of Isaiah that even our righteous deeds are as filthy rags before a holy God. And so the Bible simply says here that we are all sinners and that because the law, because the word of God, because the commandments of God, the whole world has become accountable to God in verse 19. Now, Verse 20, because by the works of the law, that is the external observance, doing the right thing, simply obeying on the outside, because of the work of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Now this young man, he had the external observance, Jesus didn't challenge him on that, but what he was not was justified. He didn't have eternal life. You cannot, according to the Bible, be justified by simply following the law or doing good things. What does it mean to be justified? What does that mean? Justification is a legal term. Imagine now God as judge. He's many things. He's also the judge. God is the judge. And when he justifies somebody, he is making a legal declaration that that person is not guilty. Now, the Word of God just told us very clearly that we are all guilty. And yet there are those who will be declared not guilty by God. And it won't happen according to the right things they've done. It's not according to works. Oh, but that's only part of justification. Part of justification is being declared not guilty. You might have heard it this way, uh, being made just as if we had never sinned. But if we were only made just as if we had never sinned, then we would only be morally neutral. But God wants to make us more than morally, morally neutral. He wants to do more than just take away our sin. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 declares this, God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God. That is to say, when you come to Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, He not only declares you not guilty, He declares you righteous, perfect, good before God, because our identity is now in Christ Jesus. The Christian is identified with Christ. God looks at us now through the lens of Christ Jesus through the blood of the Lamb, so to speak, and God can only see you in Christ Jesus and His Son, as the Bible declares, is perfect, without sin, holy, undefiled, separate from sinners, according to the book of Hebrews. And so when you come to Jesus Christ and you're forgiven for your sins, it's not as though you're only not guilty. Now you are righteous and have merit and favor before God. Anybody ever been busted for speeding? A speeding ticket? Okay, brother, me too. So, you get a speeding ticket. You go before the judge. You can raise your hand, Risa. That's okay. We did. I did. You get a speeding ticket. You go before the judge. And the judge says, okay, how do you plead? What's the deal? You got a ticket here. It says you're going 100. Oh, judge, I wasn't just going 100. I was going 103. And the judge says, not guilty. Uh. Your Honor, um, may I approach the bench? Hey, Judge, listen. Here's the deal. Um, I don't know if you heard me. It's probably been a long day for you. Maybe you didn't have lunch. The Atkins thing is killing you. Um, listen, I, I said I, I'm guilty. I wasn't only going, I was going 103. Not guilty. Okay, <laughs> sounds good. Okay, thank you, Judge. Have a good day. I'm out of here. And the judge says, wait a minute. Oh, okay, here it comes. Your ticket was going to be $300. Not only are you free from that debt, but the court would now like to pay you $600. (laughs) This is insane. What is this? I'm guilty and you say I'm innocent and you're going to write me a check for $600? What is this? It's called grace. It is called grace. And salvation is by grace through faith alone. You cannot, you will not, it is impossible to earn your way to heaven. You have to receive your ticket to heaven as a free gift of God, the price having been paid upon the cross as Jesus Christ hung there and spilt his blood for you and I. It is not free in the sense that there was not a cost for it. There's a tremendous cost for our sins, but Jesus paid the price. And now you and I receive it freely as a gift. And we are justified, declared innocent and righteous before God. Verse 24 speaks to it. It says in verse 24, We are justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation. Whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation. If you have the NIV, I think it says atoning sacrifice. But I want to teach you this wonderful Bible word, propitiation. We're told here that on the cross, Jesus was displayed by God the Father as a propitiation. What is a propitiation? A propitiation is a sacrifice that satisfies. It is the act of appeasing wrath. That is to say, God has for you and I and for humanity wrath. Make no mistake about it. I will not apologize for what the Bible says. The Bible declares earlier in the book of Romans that when men sin and they think they're getting away with it, what is actually happening is they're storing up for themselves wrath in heaven. You know this. People challenge the existence of God through this all the time. They'll sin and they'll say, where's your God? I just sinned. What did he do? God, strike me down. I'm going to do it again. And they sin again. God, what do you do? What? Do something. Where are you, God? See, there's no God. I'm getting away with my sin. I can live however I want. The Bible declares that they're not getting away with anything, that they are, we are storing up wrath for ourselves in heaven. It says in the book of Isaiah and also in the book of Malachi that there is a record of bad deeds kept in heaven. And that every time we sin, God goes, wrath. Oh, I sinned again. Ch-chissed. Wrath again. Oh, I sinned more. Ch-chissed. More wrath. And that the unrepentant sinner is storing up for himself wrath in heaven, though he believes himself to be getting away with something. It's tragic. And what happened upon the cross is that all that stored up wrath was going to be dealt with. You see, the Bible declares that God is righteous. That means He doesn't turn a blind eye to sin. He doesn't just let stuff go. We hate a judge who is crooked, don't we? We hate it when someone stands guilty before a judge, and we all know they're guilty, and the judge says, well, just go ahead. That's not justice. That's wrong. That's perversion. God will not do that. God is a just god a just judge and so the wrath that was stored up the debt that humanity owed it had to be dealt with if god never dealt with it god would not be a just judge he's compromised his own standard he's violated his own word and his own character and for centuries past humanity has been storing up wrath for themselves and god had not yet dealt with it fully And yet for God to save us, for God to allow us into heaven, He couldn't simply turn a blind eye. Somehow that wrath had to be paid for, and that's what the cross of Jesus Christ was all about. Jesus was the sacrifice that satisfied the wrath of God. God displayed Him publicly as the propitiation through His blood. The sacrifice that satisfied the wrath of God. Because Jesus totally satisfied the wrath of God, God is totally satisfied with the child of God. Oh, you didn't hear me. Because Jesus totally satisfied the wrath of God, God is totally satisfied with the child of God. So when God looks at you, He sees you, Christian, through the lens of Jesus Christ. You see, we walk around thinking, God is mad at me again. I blew it again. God is upset. I'm so dirty. I'm so rotten. Oh, I'm a horrible Christian. And God is going, huh? My son bled upon the cross for those sins. He totally satisfied my wrath and my righteous judgment. The only thing I have for you now, my child, is grace. That is why Romans chapter 5, verse 1 declares that our standing in God is according to grace. God deals with, with us on the basis of unmerited favor a gift. He looks at you and he says, you are my perfect and cleansed child. And there comes into your mind that dichotomy that we illustrated with the judge. Wait a minute, God, I'm guilty. I know, but it's been paid for. In fact, I don't know. I chose not to remember it. It's removed as far as east is from the west. It's buried us in the deepest sea. So when we come to the Lord, because Jesus was a propitiation, we're not only declared not guilty; we are declared righteous before God. And when we show up in heaven, it will not be as though God the Father says to you, "Well, Brit, you just made it in here by the hair, of your chinny chin chin, just by the skin of your teeth, you little sinner. You just you're not guilty. You just whoosh, you just made it in. It won't be that way. We will be received into heaven as the perfect, undefiled, pure." spotless bride of Jesus Christ because we are in him and his blood covers our sins. People, if that doesn't turn you on, you have no switch. Go back now to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10. With that in mind now, we continue. We read again in verse 20, And the young rich ruler said to Jesus, Teacher, I have kept all these things up from my youth. Now, we would expect now the Lord to give him a Bible study on Romans chapter 3. Oh, yes, you have, my child. But understand that according to Romans chapter 3, verse 20, No flesh shall be justified in the sight of God according to the law. It is only the free gift of grace. So that means nothing. That's what we would expect the Lord to do is give him a little Bible study in Romans 3, but look what the Lord does. He gets to the heart of the issue, literally. Jesus looked at him and loved him and said to him, one thing you lack, go and sell all you possess and give to the poor and you shall have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. But at these words, his face fell or literally became gloomy and he went away grieved. Because he was one who owned much property. What is the Lord saying here? Well, I'll tell you what the Lord is not saying. The Lord is not saying that money will keep you from heaven, necessarily. The Lord is not saying that to be rich is wrong. To have possessions is evil. The Bible doesn't teach that anywhere. If that were the means of salvation, then we would expect later on in verse 26 when the disciples say, then who can be saved? That Jesus would have responded in verse 27 by saying, whoever sells all their junk. That's who's saved. The Bible doesn't teach that. Nobody in history has ever been saved by selling their stuff. We don't give altar calls. Billy Graham will not say it his last crusade in Pasadena in a couple weeks. And if you want to sell all your stuff, you can come forward and be saved. We're saved by grace through faith alone. Jesus here is not teaching that the Christian has to sell all his stuff in order to be saved. What he is doing is probing the man's heart. Because what God is interested in is your heart. If I could say it plainly, God is a lover. And a lover wants the heart. Understand. God is a lover and he is after your heart, not your stuff. But if your heart is wrapped around your stuff, God will mess with your stuff. Because he wants your heart. And so he said to the man, you got to sell your stuff because that's where your heart is. Young man, you've put your hope in your things. You've tried to find security in your possessions. You're looking for eternity in junk that is temporal. And I want your heart, and your heart is wrapped around your stuff, so get rid of your stuff, and then you'll be ready to follow me. The tragedy is the man couldn't do it. He had what is called a divided heart. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Pure there means undivided. Blessed is the person with an undivided heart, for they shall see God. If it were you who were standing before the Lord this day, you would have pointed something else out. If it were me, it would have been some other stuff. But for this man, what was keeping him from eternity was he was not willing to give his whole heart to the Lord. Now, those are difficult words, aren't they? That's challenging. The Christian immediately makes application. Because as the Christian life begins, so the Christian life continues. And the Christian life begins by surrendering the things of the world and surrendering unto God. God, I come before you, and I just lay my life down. I am a sinner. I repent. Forgive me. And that is the way that the Christian life continues, is by just laying ourselves and our life and our agenda down. But don't you know that the world always wants to creep between you and your God? The world always wants to creep between you and your God. It always wants to come in and choke out what God is doing. Let's talk about it in Matthew, or I'm sorry, Mark chapter 4. Turn to Mark 4. Mark chapter 4, we already studied it several months ago. It is the parable of the sower and the soils, remember the sower goes out to sow the seed and it falls on different soils and in some soils the birds just come up and eat it. Other soils it falls on rocky ground, it springs up for a little bit but then it withers away. Another soil it took root but then the weeds come and choke it out and another soil it was good and so it produced a harvest. Jesus asked, or the disciples asked Jesus what does this parable mean? And he's explaining to them the different soils of the heart. And in verse 18, we see one that pertains to our message today. Mark four eighteen. He says, And others are the ones on whom seed was sown among the thorns. These are the ones who have heard the word, and the worries of the world, and the deceitfulness of riches, and the desire for other things enter in and choke The word and it becomes unfruitful. God is always seeking to cultivate in you His precepts. That is accomplished primarily by His Holy Spirit working through His holy word. As you take the word in through your eyes and through your ears, God is faithful to work it out through your life by His Holy Spirit. But what sometimes happens is that the soil of your heart is thorny. Or there's thorns that spring up in there. And it says here that they are the worries of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, and the desire for other things. And that they hinder the work of God in your life. Why? Your heart is no longer undivided. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. But now you have a divided heart wavering between two gods. Jesus said you cannot serve God and mammon or God and money. You either hate one and cling to the other or hate the other and cling to the one. You cannot serve both. Elijah in 1 Kings chapter 18 said to Israel, how long will you waver between two opinions? If Baal is God, then worship him. But if God is God, then worship him. And so the Lord is saying here, be very careful of the worries of the world or this age, or this world system, and the deceitfulness of riches. How tricky is money? Do you know that in the Bible, there are about 500 verses on prayer, there are about 500 verses on faith, and there are over 2,000 verses on money. Why? Oh God, he, he, he wants your money. That's why. He's got four times as much to say about faith and prayer because he wants your money. God doesn't need your money, man. God doesn't need your money. Hello, God could make money. (laughs) So why do we give to the work of God at all? Because God wants your heart and your heart is wrapped around your money. For me and for you. For me and for you. If not, praise God for you. If so, deal with it. What it does, the deceitfulness of riches, it comes in and it chokes out the word of God. It's deceitful. It's insidious. It's, 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 it's sneaky, sneaky. Now, there is no biblical prohibition against having riches, none whatsoever. In fact, many men of God were blessed with tremendous riches by him. Abraham, Job, Solomon, so on and so forth. But it is the fact that money so often takes a primary place in our heart. The worries of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. Guys, my prayer as a Christian is that I would be fruitful for God. I want to be used by God. I want my life to count for his kingdom. I want to make a difference in this world for the glory of God. I want to be transformed daily into the image of Christ Jesus that I might lead more people to Christ Jesus. And I struggle daily with desires for other things. In and of themselves, they are not sinful. Dirt bikes, surfboards, (laughs) guitars, whatever. In and of themselves, they are not sinful. But when they begin to distract my attention from the living of God and the agenda of God and the work of the kingdom of God, and my heart is given to them and not to him, then for me it becomes sin. Watch diligently over your heart. Billy Graham says about this young man, the young man came with the right question to the right man and received the right answer, but he made the wrong decision. He wasn't willing to surrender. He wasn't willing to lay it down. And so for him, at this moment in Mark chapter 10, it is possible that eternity was lost. Understand that this rich young ruler is not a parable. This was not a made-up story. This was an actual encounter with Jesus Christ. And it is possible that this day, this man is not in heaven because he was not willing to surrender to God. That breaks my heart. I want to go to heaven and see this rich young ruler. My hope and my prayer is that three decades down the road, he somehow received a manuscript of the writings of Paul, Romans chapter 3, and he read it. And he said, I understand now that I will never be justified by the works of the law, but it is a gift of God by which I will be justified. God, I repent, I surrender, forgive me. Thank you, Jesus, that you were the propitiation. We don't know about this man. But you can know about yourself where your heart is today. I'm going to speak to the non-Christians exclusively for one moment. How do you know if you're not a Christian? Many people think they're a Christian and they're not. How do you know if you're not a Christian? Well, you've never come before God sincerely and said, God, I am a sinner who is wrong. I'm wrong. God, forgive me. According to what Jesus Christ did on the cross, I believe him to be the way, the truth, and the life, the only way to heaven. Lord, forgive me according to what he did upon the cross and save me now. And your life was transformed. You weren't perfect. Christians still sin. The difference is you were forgiven. And there came into your life a degree of satisfaction which was not known before. There came into your life a peace which was not present prior to that prayer. There came into your life a joy which you had never experienced in your life. And all of a sudden, you begin to be transformed from the inside out. You used to like to do this, and now all of a sudden, this is, you just all, just, that's wrong. I can't do that. I've always done that. We always did this. Has anybody experienced that? He begins to change you from the inside out and all of a sudden, the things of God are important to you and you do weird things like go to church. (laughs) If that's not you and you're not a Christian, you need to know that the Bible does not promise you tomorrow. Our church just bought a bus, 48 passenger, giant, big, white, touring bus that's out in the parking lot. God does not promise you tomorrow. You could walk out in the parking lot and Pastor G could come around the corner and... you look at me and say, Pastor B, was he saved? I don't know, man. I hope so. Listen, you're not promised tomorrow. The Bible never says you have tomorrow as a promise. Today is the day to figure out eternity. Today is the day to make a decision for Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Now is the moment. I'll speak to the Christian for a moment. You know what this text means for you. There's things in the world and in your life that got in between you and your God. The way that the Christian life has began is the way that the Christian life is lived. A surrender unto the Lord. And you just know you've let certain things of the world creep in. You are not unique in that. All men and women sin in the same things. I am guilty as you are. But there comes in my life continually about um, every seven days or so The need to, Lord, gosh, I'm sorry for that. Why am I so wrapped up in that? Why am I pursuing after that? Lord, again, not my will be done, your will be done. God, again, I surrender my agenda. Lord, give me faith to act on your promises. Lord, I'm sorry for following after that. I can't believe it again. (laughs) But here we are, Sunday, it's time again. If you're not a Christian, I'm begging you by the mercy of God to repent today as a sinner and allow God to forgive you. You and only you and God know that there is an emptiness in your life, that you're just like the rich young ruler. You can have your health, you can have money, and you can have prestige and be a shallow, empty man. There's a hole in your life that only God could fill. He only fills it when sin is repented of and forgiven. Make that decision today. God, I pray in Jesus' name that you would call men and women unto yourself. And if anybody in here hasn't surrendered to you as a sinner and begged for your forgiveness, Lord, cause them to do so now. People, here's how it happens. In your heart, you just come and talk to God and say, God, I do wrong things. I know it. And I know you're real. I know you are my creator. And I know that Jesus Christ is the Savior. And so save me now. I turn from my sins and I turn toward you as best as I know how. God, I want you to come into my life. Forgive me and be my Lord and my Savior. I don't understand all that it means, but I know I need it. The moment you pray that prayer, the Bible declares that the angels in heaven are rejoicing. That there is literally a party going on in heaven because you will be there. Lord, I pray for those people that right now you would flood them with a sense of your grace and your mercy and your joy and your peace and true hope for eternity. That suddenly the things of the world would seem less important and you would be paramount in their lives. They would fall in love with you, their king and their savior and their creator. And now I pray for my brothers and sisters. You would just cause us once again to examine our lives and be weary of the worries of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desire for other things and all that stumbled this rich young ruler. Thank you that you saved us. And you love us enough to work with us over and over again. We just give you all our stuff, Lord. And trust you with it. In Jesus' name, amen.